Hello and welcome to Switzer Investing. I'm Peter Switzer. And on tonight's show, I grill Paul Rickard on the hot stock he likes right now. And I run by him the stocks that I think have upside, but the market at the moment is not really in love with. These stocks are A2 Milk, Elmo Software, and Megaport. The analysts really like these companies with pretty big upside, which I'll, I'll talk about when I have a discussion with Paul. And then we'll meet the deputy chair of Rex Airlines, John Sharp, who plans to stick it to Qantas and Virgin by being a viable third airline, which it always actually has been, but now it's starting to fly capital city to capital city, something they didn't do before. Then after that, CoreLogic's Tim Lawless tells us why he thinks the big boom in house prices will eventually slow down, but when? And Coolabaya Capital's Yingyi and Chen gives us the inside mail on what will happen to interest rates and when it will happen. That's the show, so let's kick off with Paul Ricard of The Switzer Report. Well, now it's time to catch up with Paul Rickard of the Switzer Report. Now, I've asked Paul to isolate a stock he really likes right now. And I want to grill him over why he likes it and what he thinks lies ahead. And after that, I'm going to throw three stocks that I'm already invested in. And because they haven't really taken off as much as I like, I'm going to buy more of them. But I'd like to see what he thinks about those stocks as well. So, Paul, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Peter. Look, I've chosen a stock that we've liked for a little while. It's, mm. in fact, for some months. It's Reliance Worldwide. It's mm. RWC is the code. Yeah. It's in the plumbing business. It makes these The fittings. plumbing business. A lot well, of people out there would say, how exciting could a plumbing business well, be? Well, it's, it's the number one in the US in terms of some of the... Uh, fittings it makes that particularly go into uh, home renovations and other sort of jobs that have been done to right. fix apartments. So it's, it's got some leading brands in the States uh, and very strong both in Europe and also Australia. So yeah. although it's an Australian company, it's uh, more offshore than onshore. It's a great success story when you just look at it as, as a business that's expanded into so many foreign yeah, markets. Yeah, look, it's had, it had a really good run on the market after, after it listed. It went to something like over $6.00. Uh, the founders then started to sell down. Then uh, that caused a few issues yeah. because the market didn't like that. And then, of course, uh, it went through a couple of uh, tough years. But it's, it's come back pretty well as the U.S. housing market in particular has recovered. Mm. And, uh, you know, management's changed a little bit. And uh, a stock that was got down back in from 6 down to about $2.50, it's now out about four sixty. We've liked it for some while for our clients, Peter. And yeah. uh, it's done pretty well the last uh, 12 months or so. Yeah, so... Some people will look at it and say, well, hang on, have I missed the boat? You know, it's had such a good rise. Obviously, you think there's more upside in this Look, I do. I mean, I don't think it's on a particularly demanding multiple yet. It's, it's priced on a multiple about 20 times uh, this year's earnings. Yep. Now, that sounds like a lot, but given where the market is and where it's been and where some of the other competitors in this space are, I don't think 20 times is actually that demanding a multiple. Not with interest rates as low as they are. Not with interest rates the way they are. And, you know, it started uh, this year, it's, it reported well in, the, in, for, in February. It said that sales for the first six weeks of this half year are up about 14% in constant currency terms. So still very strong sales. Uh, we know that the that the home market is pretty strong in, in the States as yep. it is in Australia. It's not yep. just new homes, it's more about people um, renovating. renovating and mm. doing things. And then, of course, if you have a really strong primary market, you know, new sales market, that actually encourages people to renovate and do all those sort of things. Mm. And, and with the stimulus checks going around, they've suddenly got money to do it. So yeah. that all goes well, I think, for the company. As I said, the multiple's not particularly demanding at 20 times. Uh, it, it was back at $6 in 2018. I don't think it can, I'm not saying to get back to six, but I think you can see another 50, 60 cents, at least 10% from here. 
Analysts have got a target price of uh, $4.86 on consensus, but a range of higher $5.50 down to $4.40. Mm -hmm. So the analysts think there's more in it. I think the multiple's pretty good. Look at that chart. Uh, it's uh, it's it's on the on the, yeah. on the uptrend. It's going up and down sideways, but you can see there's an uptrend there. If you go back to the, the, the first pullout around August of 2020, well, if you keep following your eye along, that's on a rising uh, trend, even though there's ups and downs. So, I, and I like the company. You're right, Paul. And I also think because the boom in the U.S. is going to be strong. Mm -hmm. You know, Biden's spending a lot. He's doing infrastructure spending. That creates jobs. It creates the whole, you know, um, uh, expansion of residential properties around those infrastructure projects and whatever. I just think you're absolutely right. This is a good company. It might not shoot the lights out. We were buying it in August or even the depths of March. But certainly, I think you, you picked up a good Yeah, company. I guess just to give you the risk side, a couple of risks. One is, of course, raw materials. I mean, if copper prices keep increasing, that yeah. has a bit of an impact. So there's some, that's probably why you're not seeing it tear off, because yeah. the people are worried about input prices. And again, of course, it's, uh, you know, it's not one of these companies where a lot of the sales are coming out of the States. And so if the Aussie dollar keeps increasing, as, as we think it will, that's just going to make it harder. But I think it's a pretty well-run business. Uh, it's good actually to sell it. The founders have got out of the largely got out of the company. It's got yeah. a new management team. Uh, I think it's doing pretty well in all of its key markets. Yeah, great. Okay, that's yours. Now I've come up with three, Paul, and they're three stocks that I'm already invested in. I invested in them knowing that it's going to take time for them to come back. I liked the idea that the market had sold them off, and I thought, well, it's a good time to buy. And I, and I guess my question is. You know, is it still worth believing mm -hmm. in these, these three companies? So let me run through them first of all. One is I know you've got a view on, and that's A2 Milk. Now, um, as I say, I, I probably bought around eight or nine. It's down around near $7 or something now. And I want to buy more because I think it's going to eventually come good. But I, I realise that it's going to re rely on the Chinese playing a much better game. Uh, international travel mm -hmm. has to improve because um, the, the Chinese tourists took a hell of a lot of that, st that stuff back. But I always keep coming back to something you always talk about, and that is it's good to buy the best of breed in a particular industry. And this is what it is. I think it is the best of breed with the best brand name, uh, and that has value, Peter. Now, I think the market's still probably expecting... One of the problems with A2 Milk is it clearly... You know, management's been overconfident. Mm. We've had now had three downgrades, all in very short succession. Mm. Well, we, un we all understand the reasons, obviously. You know, obviously the, the, the closure of borders, the Chinese diagu haven't been able to travel, so there's that, and, all, and also there's more competition occurring in China from local mm. brands. Um, but management were just too confident or didn't want to tell the market the whole story. We've had three downgrades and the market still feels there could be another one coming, right? Yeah. So that's why the price hasn't been going So that up, actually right? creates an opportunity if a bad piece of bad news doesn't come, but it's always possible. So I think it's sort of starting to, to, to bottom a little bit. I mean, there was some news. One Maybe of we can see the one chart of, there and we yeah, actually show us. One of, one of the major brokers came out today with a research report just pointing to the fact that the local Chinese brands are picking up share. Mm. And uh, so it, it, it's sort of saying that both AT milk and bubs will find you know life harder going forward because the margins will come down because they'll have to come down in price to to respond a little bit to the local manufacturers but uh, look, I think it's a good company I'm looking to buy I just sort of yeah. sort of watching the price at yeah. the moment and I, I think there's still time because I think the market is still worried about this yeah. full fourth and I'm piece kind of, of thinking news. I might have to wait a year but if I buy it seven dollars or something like that so give us the, the, the five years 
and see, this is where it was. Yeah. It was a $20 stock. And I'm thinking to myself, well, if I buy at seven and it only gets to 10, or if I buy at eight maybe and it gets to 12, there's 50% on a company that you know, was a $20 stock, uh, stock uh, company. So it seems, seems to me if I'm prepared to wait, there's going to be a payoff. And it does tell you, I mean, I, I always struggled why I was at $20, but I, yeah. I, did, I, did, I have to say I liked it at 14 and $15 and mm. I liked it again most of the way down. I've now understood that it's with, the, you know, I think you've got to have a, management hasn't always been as straight as they need no, to in no. the last part. And that just shows you how quickly, you know, a, a market darling can become a marking horror story and yeah. the market sort of saying, well, we think there's more bad news. So that, that, that's why it's not going up. So lots of retail investors have been buying it. The Instos are still unloading it. Mm. Uh, I think it's got value, Peter, and I'm sort of almost there. I yeah. just uh, yeah. just don't know whether I need to do it tomorrow or I can wait a little bit longer, but uh, I'm not too far behind you. Happily, it is up 2.39% today. Yep. Yep. Let's go to the next one. There's another one, uh, and I've, I'm invested in this one. I'm gonna buy more. And that's EOO, and yep. that's uh, Elmo uh, software. Um, I, I just think it's a good company. Uh, I, if you look at the, the one-year chart, it's, it's been as high as eight, and it's now around 5.13. You can see it has ups and downs. It wasn't all that long ago the market really liked it, and, and the share price was around $7 or so. It seems to be... And, and nothing's really changed, except no. that the market has sort of said, well, okay, we don't like some tech companies as much as we used to, although almost software would say it's not really a tech company, but, yeah. but it gets caught up in that sort of brush, right? Yeah, that's right. And I think that's the important point. I think Elmo is a company that's going to benefit when normal businesses and practices are restored. And in Australia, we're getting close, but we know office workers aren't coming back to offices and all that sort of stuff. So there's probably some time, but I must admit, you know, every piece of uh, news I get about this, I've interviewed the CEO a couple of times, he hasn't made me feel nervous about being invested. And, and if you believe, uh, you know, just think about at the macro level what's happening on, on employment, Peter, that's got to be good for it. It's, it's the not, payroll. It's and the payroll, but also if, if, if you know, we really have record job advertisements, employers are going to have to start to worry about their staffing again. Yeah. So things like training and development and all those other things that you actually need yeah. this software for become important, yeah. you know, because it's, it's HR it's, without having an HR Yeah, person. because it becomes, it's really hard to not just uh, attract staff, but actually retain good staff, yeah. right? And if the employment market is hot, which, you know, if you look at the data, you know, record number of job advertisements in February in Australia, uh, we saw the ABS data in terms of new job positions created last month. We all mm. thought that was a bit of a joke. We saw the data in the US on the weekend about, about who's there, we could have a really hot employment market, yeah. in which case, you know, companies are going to have to invest again, particularly this is designed for small companies, right? Yeah. Small or medium, it's not, not, for, not for the big, big companies. Who have but, their own HR staff. But who have a whole HR team of HR people. Yeah. But uh, this is really for small and middle-sized middle companies. Uh, these sort of bits of software and the packages that they sell become important. So mm. I, I think the market has, has yet to sort of look at the macro. The macro's got to be supporting this company yeah. now. And I think you are right. They, they they see it more as a tech company that allegedly benefited from the stay-at-home period, but the, the management say no. We we actually didn't do as well as we would have liked, but we need business normal to, to actually materialise the sort of profits and revenue you'd expect. Now, are you invested in the LA? I am, and I'm invested around these levels. Oh. I invested about a month ago. It hasn't really done a lot the last month. It's mm. between around about five twenty-five and four ninety-five. But I'm a, I'm a believer in the company, Peter, and I yeah. think this is yeah. one to uh, put in the portfolio and be patient. I'm very impressed with the management, and uh, I, I like what I see. Okay, let's go to the next one. And this one's 
called Megaport. Mm. Um, You're out with the thrill seekers on <laughs> Megaport, Peter. Yeah, yeah. but it's, it's, it's had a nice rise recently. You can see it was up there around, what, $17, um, and that was after the coronavirus crash. All right, so this is a company that I am invested in, Paul, but I'm not sh I don't think you're invested no, in Megapool. No. Okay, now, the reason why I like this company is I interviewed Bevan Slattery, the guy who was one of the co-founders, and he was a guy who started NextDC and a whole lot of other really interesting uh, tech companies. And he kind of explained to me that the, the, the way this company works is take the VRC around Melbourne Cup mm -hmm. time, yep. all of a sudden its website's going to be hit by millions and millions of, uh, of people who want to know what's going on and that they don't really need a website that can carry that kind of uh, traffic all the time. So that kind of business would go to Megaport and actually just get a temporary build up of, the, of their website capacity. And he said, this is the sort of thing that Megaport got into before most, most other companies. He says that the company's got a head advantage or a head start on most other companies. And it just seemed to me it was a, a business that's going to do really well. And I want to throw one other thing. So basically providing instant capacity in terms of, uh, you know, virtual servers and things to, to yeah. these companies. Yeah, Precisely. It's, it's like an instant cloud almost. Right? I wasn't sure whether, you know, this is a, a maturing industry or not. But I then um, did a presentation recently where the guys from WCN, that mm -hmm. fund manager, yep. one of those guys presented, and he was talking about how they invest in a lot of tech companies that are in the digital space. But this is the thing that quite shocked me. I hadn't thought of it in this terms. He said, digitization is only in its infancy. So if, if digitization is in its infancy, a company like Megapore is really well established to benefit when the whole thing gets bigger and bigger. What do you think, Paul? Look, I, I agree with the thesis, and that's why um People, a lot of investors really like sort of cloud-based businesses because mm. they just know they're going to grow, right? Yeah. I mean, if, if you believe that you know one of the big mega mega things is digitization, uh, yeah, it's got to be good for cloud business. It's got to be good for things like artificial intelligence. Mm. It's got to be good for for things people businesses that own data centers like uh, NextDC and people that can provide the capacity like like Megaport. Yeah. So, look, I don't know enough about the company to really comment, Peter. No. Apart from, uh, you know, Bevan Slattery is a pretty Impressive character. Pretty impressive character yeah. and a pretty astute tech investor. Mm. Um, that chart doesn't look too bad in terms of uh, where it's at and the, the recent rise is impressive. One thing that has been a standout the last couple of weeks is that well, we were talking about this the other day, is that the worst performing sector in the March quarter was technology. That's mm. on the ASX. But that finished about a week ago, right? Yeah, and, and coming and, back to it. And pretty well in the last three or four days, the best performing sector has been technology. What's been interesting is the best tech stocks have gone up, all right? Mm. So it's, uh, it's your afterpays, it's your zeros, um, it's your next DCs. Mm. Actually, the, you know, the, the, what I describe as... Blue chip might be the wrong yeah. word, but you know what I mean? Yeah. It, people buy the best, right, yeah. when they want to buy. And we've been saying for a while, technology, there were some opportunities in tech simply because of this whole rotation stuff. Buy the best, not the worst. Mm. That's They're the ones that first. And that's a good example because that's a pretty impressive rise for Megaport over the last few days. Yeah, okay. So before we go, I'd like just to put on screen those three companies I've looked at. And I'll, I'll tell you what the analysts are saying about these companies right now. So on the screen, have a look. You've got um, my first uh, pick, A2 Milk. Uh, the analysts think 19% upside. Uh, Elmo, 
84% upside. Now, I can't walk away. There ain't one analyst that looks at it, but that analyst would do more analysis on that company than yep. any of us even, even here. So that makes me interested. And Megaport up 20.6%. So as you see, the, the professionals who assess these companies like these three companies. I'm invested. I'm going to put a little bit more in there as well because I do think over the next 6 to 12 months, I should see a, a result. So, Paul, we should actually throw Reliance in there as well. You actually looked it up. Yeah, RWC, uh, analysts thinking about 5 or 6%. Not as much as yours, Peter, but uh, I think it's probably just a little more blue chip. Yeah, yeah. Reliance, than is, at least a couple yeah. Of those Reliance is a very reliable company. Yeah. So that's Paul Rickard from the Switch Report. Coming up next, we'll be talking to uh, the Deputy Chair of Rex, John Sharp, former Aviation Minister in the Howard Government, now Deputy Chair at Rex. And he's going to tell us how Rex plans to stick it to Qantas and Virgin. Well, before going to John, last week I interviewed him for my podcast, Learning From Legends. And some of the uh, answers he gave to me, I thought were really relevant for people who invest in the stock market. So I've taken out through my questions and through the answers for your consideration, just in case you're thinking about investing in an airline like Rex. So John, um, the history of Australian airlines has been that you know, when there's a, a, a effectively a third player in the market, um, you know, one goes. How, how has Rex survived, given the fact that Qantas must have eyed you off and thought, we'd rather these guys not be here, let's play some you know, hardball with these guys and see if we can rattle them and get them out of the market. How have you survived? Well, we've survived, Peter, by having low costs. I mean, we, we, we've we started as a family business, the Hazelin and Kendall families, that culture runs on to this day. And like all family-owned businesses, you you know, it's your money that somebody's spending. And so you take a keen interest in how it's spent. Uh, we don't pay big wages. Um, we, um, you know, our senior people are paid in the, to the top of them are paid in the sort of the higher $200,000 a year bracket. Uh, for 10 years, we didn't pay a dividend um, and we kept all of the profits and we we uh, funded our capital expenditure out of cash flow when we built the company up to make it stronger financially. And, you know, we've survived as a consequence of that. So when we arrived at the pandemic, the COVID pandemic, we had no debt, we were always profitable. In fact, it's interesting, Peter, Rex has made, in the last 12 years, Rex has made more money than Qantas, more profit than Qantas. I mean, Qantas has made uh, a loss, a accumulated loss of now about 1.75 billion, and Rex has made about 300 million during that period of years. So it's a, it's a really interesting comparison. Mm. People, people think Qantas is the biggest and the strongest and the best, but in fact, we've We've made more money than they have, and mm. we're in a far better position financially than they are, with no debt and and uh, and low costs. And so, yes, we you know Qantas um, is you know Qantas has always been the biggest, the oldest airline in Australia. We're the second oldest. They're the oldest airline in Australia. They're the biggest. They've always used their weight, their muscle to bully other airlines in the marketplace to get what they want. Um, and they're a very tough, very aggressive competitor. And Qantas has gone into some of our regional markets. You know, and in the last uh, uh, few months, um, and they've started to compete with us on those markets. And the only, there's no way they can make a profit on those routes. I mean, some of those routes, like Sydney to Cooma, we have 6,000 passengers a year. Mm. Um, you know, you, you divide it by two with two operators. On Qantas is going to go on that route, 
there's only 3,000, if you divide it in half, there's only 3,000 passengers a year. You can't make money on a route like that. Never can, never will. Uh, they're doing it solely to punish wrecks, uh, to try and weaken us and tell us, you know, look at what we can do to you. We can do even more if you don't wave the white flag and give up. So, you know, they've, that's the way they operate. They always have. Uh, we knew, they knew we knew they'd do that, but we've uh, we're in a good position. It's it's uh, you know when you've got very low costs like we do, we we can withstand a lot of competition. Okay, so you're saying because you're now flying the routes capital city to capital city, that it's a bit like Robert De Niro. If you're going to mess with me, well, I'm going to mess with you. Is that is that what's going on at the moment? That's exactly what's going on. You know, it's funny. I mean, Alan Joyce is a is a fantastic fellow and. Like him very much, uh, but he's a really strong, competitive, aggressive, you know, competitor. And he's it's unusual for an Irishman to be like that, isn't it? Very. <laughs> most Irishmen put him in a pub on a Friday night; they'll have a fight. So <laughs> Alan, Alan is 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 very much uh, of that sort of you know uh, very competitive mould. But you know these these routes that we're moving into, Sydney Melbourne, for example. We, uh, people don't realise that Sydney Melbourne is the second busiest airline route in the world, 10.6 million passengers a year. Mm. The biggest, busiest one, Peter, is, is New York to London. Um, and you know, New York to London, the busiest route in the world, has 13 airlines that offer a service between the two destinations. And the second biggest airline route in the world, Sydney to Melbourne, has two, Qantas and Virgin. And it's argued that the Sydney to Melbourne airline route is the most profitable route in the world. So you know, there's room for more operators on those sorts of routes, which is where Rex intends to operate. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about what you're doing as a traveller, pretty excessive traveller, i got to say, but also, you know, I, I, I'm a person who watches the stock market really closely. Do you think the, the, the market understands the, the potential of what your guys are going to be doing? No, I don't, I don't think the market really understands. We, uh, to, I suppose it's our own fault because we don't, Put a lot of effort into trying to sell the sizzle with our sausage so to speak we don't um we don't dress things up we don't say things for the purposes of trying to boost our share price um we've we've never done that in the past and and we we're not going to change in that regard but you know we are uh, if you if you look at virgin uh bain capital paid 3.5 billion for virgin and what they bought was half of what virgin used to be they bought a brand and they bought a lot of high costs and they had a lot of problems to resolve. Uh, Rex can easily be the size of Virgin, in fact, bigger within a few years time. And, you know, our market capital on that basis would go up by 10 or 12 times. Mm. Okay. So let's focus on the big changes and just in a nutshell, what are the big changes that you're bringing to market, which ultimately should have a big impact on your revenue hopefully it has a big impact on your profit as well, um, despite the fact that you are going to have competition. So what are the big changes to Rex that could actually not only excite the travellers of Australia, but also potentially the stock market? Well, I think what Rex is doing and the big changes is that we are uh, expanding into the domestic market. Um, you know, we're expanding into a market that instead of having, you know, 1.4 million passengers a year, we'll have many multiples of that. Uh, we'll grow our domestic business as time goes by. Uh, we'll, you know, generate. We'll go from having revenues in the three hundred million dollar a year category up to, you know, in excess of a billion over time. Um, and we'll um, we will be doing that differently. We'll be expanding our regional network 
during that period as well, because Virgin has left uh, a number of uh, regional routes. Uh, for example, this week we've started flying between Coffs Harbour and Sydney and Port Macquarie and Sydney, and we hope to fly in West Australia between Perth and Geraldton before too much longer. They're, they're routes that Virgin has abandoned, uh, and, and we're, we're so expanding into those. They're quite big routes. We're expanding into the Canberra market. Sydney, Canberra's 930,000 passengers a year pre-COVID. Sydney, Melbourne's 1.2 million passengers a year pre-COVID. You know, we are starting to grow That's that part of our business, and, and, and we're doing it from a, a low cost base. So, you know, we potentially, uh, once we get established, we potentially will be a, a very strong business. And that was John Sharp, the Deputy Chair of Rex. And now I'm going to be talking to Tim Lawless from CoreLogic about these unbelievable house price rises. Well, at a time when house prices seem to be going through the roof, one man who have a pretty good perspective on it is Tim Lawless from CoreLogic. Tim, thanks for joining us. Hi, Peter. Always a pleasure. Okay, uh, I think the, is it the Sydney house prices or is it the national house prices have risen at the fastest rate in 33 years? Yeah, well, both have. <laughs> both. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's quite a phenomenal story. We are seeing housing markets for housing values rising at record-breaking levels, virtually at least since the late 90s, or since the late 80s. Sydney housing values were up nearly 4% in the space of one month alone. So it's... Uh, gives you a bit of an idea of the heat that's in the marketplace and just how, how strong selling conditions are driving such rapid capital gains. Mm. So obviously, because you're so young, Tim, you've never worked and seen something like this before, or, or have you seen something like this before in maybe a separate market? I do remember Perth went through an unbelievable price rise a few years back, but is, is this something really un, unusual on a national uh, level? Well, it is absolutely. So it's not, uh, you know, it's not a frequent occurrence. You see housing values rising this quickly, but what's even more unique is just how synchronized this upswing is. We're seeing housing values rising rapidly pretty much everywhere. The weakest performer over the month, at least across the capitals was Adelaide with a growth rate of one and a half percent in a month, which mm. in itself is quite extreme. So the last time we saw housing markets moving in this synchronized fashion where every region across the country was rising in value was just after the GFC, which has some similarities, I guess, in the sense that there was a lot of stimulus on offer at that stage, interest rates had come down as well. But what's happened over previous times where we're seeing housing markets rising this quickly before, there was always something to slow the market down, be it either uh, you know, rising interest rates or removal of stimulus or a weakening economy. This time around, it looks more and more likely that, well, we're not expecting rates to rise anytime soon, at least short-term rates. We're not expecting an economic slowdown. It looks like there's plenty of momentum there. Um, we're not expecting uh, any sort of other black swans coming out, hopefully, although that, in the nature of it, we, we can't see that. So what's more likely is we'll see this housing growth trend being slowed by a tightening of credit, which of course is looking more and more likely, probably more now uh, a case of when, not if. And that's probably the uncertainty is when we might start to see any sort of tightening in the credit sector that could start to slow down the housing market. Mm. Tim, you, you have been around long enough to, uh, I, I know you 
has seen a lot of Reserve Bank governors make comments about the, the state of our housing market. Are you surprised that uh, Dr. Phil Lowe is so, seems to be so relaxed about house price movements at the moment? Uh, no, not really. Uh, you know, if you look at the statements coming from the RBA, they've been very clear. They are watching housing markets quite closely. Uh, but I suppose to, to the RBA's mandate, housing isn't part of, of their mandate, nor is it part of APRA's uh, financial stability is, obviously. Um, so I, I think the RBA is right in saying that, they, that it's not really their job to wade into uh, the economy and slow the housing market down, but it is their job, particularly the Council of Financial Regulators, to be watching credit flows. And that's what they've been saying repeatedly. Any sign of a material worsening in lending standards will probably be the catalyst for any uh, uh, new macro prudential policies. We know when the December data was released uh, a few weeks back from APRA, it did show that lending standards had slipped a little bit. There was a rise in interest only lending, there was a rise in high debt to income ratio lending, there was a rise in higher LVR lending as well, but probably not enough to trigger any sort of reaction just yet. But my guess is uh, those statistics will be watched quite closely. And if we see a further blowout in those metrics, along with rapidly rising housing prices, then almost undoubtedly we'll start to see some credit tightening happen. Mm. Now, I want you to show some courage here, Tim. You know, I know you're a very careful and respectful man. But do you think that you know, the Reserve Bank uh, and, and maybe even the banks have been a little surprised at how fast we have recovered? And as a consequence, when you're factoring unbelievably low interest rates and the quickness of this recovery, it just makes total sense that house prices should rise so quickly, given the fact there's a supply problem as well. Well, I think at the heart of this, this housing price surge in values is exactly what you're asking. It's the fact that we have seen the economy recovering much faster than what any of the forecasts were suggesting, even, even mainstream economic forecasts outside of the RBA or Treasury hadn't predicted an economic rebound that was this quick. Uh, so that's, that's really behind what's inflated consumer spirits. We're seeing consumer sentiment well and truly above COVID levels. And that's obviously stoking demand at a time when housing supply remains really low. And by housing supply, I simply mean the number of homes that are advertised for sale. We are seeing more homes being built, of course, so I think really at the heart of this growth in housing values is this disconnection between the number of homes that are available to purchase and the surge in buying numbers we've seen. In fact, to put it into numbers, we've seen about a 25% lift in buyer activity and about a 25% fall in the number of homes that are available for sale. And it's that shortage of supply against really high demand, which is creating this urgency call it FOMO or whatever you want, but it's, uh, it's that sense of urgency that's really creating this upwards pressure in housing prices. So why is there such a low supply of housing? Like, I, I, I would throw in one possibility as a question in a sense. Are a lot of people who might own a home keeping them and renting them out and buying another one? It's hard to say. So if you look at the, the listing numbers, we're now seeing the number of new listings coming in the marketplace is higher than a year ago. It's higher than 2019. In fact, it's a little bit above the five-year average. So we're starting to see vendors taking advantage of the really strong selling conditions. There's more stock coming on the market. 
But what's keeping overall advertised supply low is this really rapid rate of absorption is if you look at a ratio of say sale numbers to new listings, it's tracking around 1.1, 1.2, which means for every new listing that comes on the market, there's more than one home being sold. So that's what's keeping overall stock levels down and creating this, this urgency. To the second point of your question, uh, is, is this more about people um, uh, renting a home and, or keeping their old home and, and buying another one? Yeah, maybe there's a little bit of that. Maybe another factor that's, that's coming into it is we are anecdotally at least hearing a lot more properties that are selling without an advertising campaign. They're selling off market. So no doubt that's probably uh, skewing or maybe um, uh, dragging the overall listing numbers down a little bit if, uh, if we're not seeing them being advertised. But I think another factor that's probably really important is what we can see in some of the building approvals data is there has been a bit of a renovation boom at the same time as a housing boom. And we're probably seeing more people willing to stay put rather than upgrade or, or downsize they're renovating and uh, uh, maybe that's a little bit of fear that when the market's moving so quickly, they don't want to sell and then be locked out of the marketplace down the track, or maybe through COVID, they're, uh, they're much more willing to stay put and uh, um, just upgrade their own premises um, uh, and maybe take advantage of the home builders grant where you can get, uh, or you could previously get a, a benefit from a, a material renovation. Mm. Yeah, I think it, I might have to call it the Scott Cam, the block problem. Everyone's watching Scott and re renovating their homes to increase the, the real value of their property. Yeah, well, my tip there would be don't try to pull a Scott Cam yourself. Every time mm -hmm. I try to renovate something, I end up paying somebody to come in and fix what I tried to <laughs> uh, do myself and it costs me double the amount. So, <laughs> Okay, use your, use your crystal ball to tell us what you think is going to happen in this market. So we are expecting prices to continue rising, but not at the same pace as what we're seeing currently. You wouldn't expect housing values could possibly continue to rise this quickly at a time when incomes aren't really doing all that much. So particularly now that we've seen a lot of the fiscal support winding out, it makes sense that that, that demand side that I've been talking about is likely to start tapering probably more due to first home buyers becoming less active. We know that first home buyers will be more sensitive to affordability constraints. There'll also be less uh, stimulus there for first home buyers. Take Victoria as a good example. You know, we see the stamp duty uh, discounts will expire uh, through the second half of the year. Uh, there's probably going to be this, this pull forward of demand that we've already seen will have a downside to it as well. So I'm expecting we will see demand dropping off through the second half of the year, supply probably rising as well. That should be enough along with affordability constraints to start slowing the market down a little. And then if I'm right, and we do start to see some credit constraints coming into the marketplace, I think if we do see that, they'll be more aimed at keeping household debt levels low. So maybe firm limits on LVRs or debt to income ratios, but any sort of credit intervention you'd have to expect is going to dampen the marketplace as well, along with those affordability uh, constraints that are more organic. Okay. So yeah, rising prices through 2021, probably well into 2022. But I personally, I think we're probably moving through the peak rate of growth uh, at the moment. Mm. Well, one last one. Um, have apartments been left behind? Like particularly in Sydney, there were fears about apartment blocks falling over. Then you had the the, um, the aluminium um, shield problems and all those sorts of things. Have, have lots of buyers avoided apartments and chased homes 
pushing up home prices at a faster rate than apartments. And therefore, could there then be a shift into the apartments because there's potential value there? There's a few things happening in the apartment market. I think it's pretty clear that there's been a, a preference shift away from anything that's, that's higher density uh, through, the, through the pandemic, which I guess is normal. Uh, we have seen houses well and truly outperforming apartments in terms of value growth, but also in terms of just simply market activity. You know, we're seeing house sales tracking around 17% above the five-year average. Unit sales are still a little bit below the five average in terms of overall number of, uh, of sales. And to your point, there's also those, those legacies um, in, in the unit sector of oversupply in some inner city precincts of flammable cladding, remediation costs of construction quality. So I think all those things have added up to an underperformance in the unit sector, but we are still seeing unit prices rising. They're just simply underperforming. Even in some of the really hard hit rental markets like uh, Melbourne CBD and, uh, and Docklands and South Bank, inner city Sydney, where rents have fallen you know, 13 to, uh, in some cases, 25%, like in Melbourne CBD. Even in those inner city high rise precincts, we haven't seen apartment values falling, at least just yet. They're up mildly. Um, maybe this is a, is a symptom of mortgage deferrals holding distressed stock off the marketplace. So we'll get a little bit more of an insight about that over the coming months. But yet, those inner city apartment precincts have been amazingly resilient despite this uh, um, significant downwards pressure on rents. Values seem to be holding relatively firm. Great stuff. Thanks for joining us, mate. And um, let's hope you're right. Well, joining me now is Ying Yi and Chang from Coolabar Capital. And we want to really understand what is the, the latest outlook on things like interest rates? Because um, there's a sort of a changing mood at the moment, but I wonder whether the experts at Coolabar are changing their attitude towards interest rates. Good to see you, Yingyu. Good to see you again, Peter. All right, so I don't expect you to change your mind, but th there is a bit of uh, an argument going on out there that maybe interest rates will rise quicker than people expect. What are you guys th thinking about those arguments? Well, the market is definitely sort of pricing that in. So, you know, a lot of the moves that we've seen in bond markets um, is really about the long end. So we're talking about that 10-year part of the curve. So we've seen 10-year yields in largely driven out of the US um, really spike up. So earlier this week, they got to 1.77%, um, which is quite you know, dramatic in the scheme of things. And it doesn't really look like this concern or these um, market expectations are abating. However, you need to remember that we're talking about the 10 year part of the curve. So yeah, this is point. the market expectation in 10 years time. Uh, so, you know, right now, the market is looking at all the stimulus that's taking place. So in particular, this Biden stimulus package, what they're doing around infrastructure, etc. cetera. Uh, and so, you know, they're looking at that and they see this as massively, um, you know, stimulatory and will cause inflation down the track. Mm -hmm. However, what we've seen, you know, central banks commit to with whether it's you know, the ECB, offshore and the Fed, um, but also in particular the RBA. The way that the RBA is communicated is that they're very committed to lower rates, um, at least in the near term. So we're talking over the next couple of years. Um, so rates aren't going to be running away anywhere in the next couple of years. 
down the track, you know, that might be a bit of a different story. But obviously, markets are incredibly intelligent and smart, and they're always thinking ahead. Yeah, but it seems to me, uh, Ying Yi, that even the, the view on 10 years, like, it's not, it's not even 2% in 10 years time. It's probably going to be 4 or 5% in 10 years time if you look at the, the kind of boom that's probably going to happen with all the spending going on. So, yeah, quite possibly. Look, yeah. I mean, you know, we, we could easily get to 2 or 2.5%, two yeah. um, you know, down the track. So the risk for, infl like the risk for, well, the inflation risk for a lot of fixed income portfolios is very real. So... You know, we have always had the philosophy that we don't want any um, fixed rate risk in our portfolio for that very reason, is that when inflation does come and you have, you know, fixed rate bonds or fixed rate risks in your portfolio, um, that is quite detrimental. So, you know, it's no, it's no different to you um, deciding to fix your mortgage or not, right? Mm. If you believe that rates are going to be higher in the future, you probably want to fix your rate now. Yeah. Um, however, when you're a bondholder, i.e. you're the lender, you sit on the other side. So you definitely don't want people... So you actually, if you fix the rate and lend to someone at a lower rate when you can actually get compensated at a high rate in the future, you yeah. actually lose out. So it's the opposite. Yeah. And that's why you guys chase floating rates rather than fixed. Well, this is why we we decide to hedge all of our portfolios and we have no fixed rate risk. So it's all 100% floating rate. It's not to stop us from investing in fixed rate bonds. However, when we do invest in fixed rate bonds, we just take out that fixed rate risk. We hedge it. Hmm. Okay. So you know, your colleague, Chris Joy, in the AFR has been looking at the house price boom. Um, and he, he, he's very positive that it's going to be, a, you know, the price is going to rise. But what's his attitude towards APRA? Does he think APRA is going to eventually come in and restrict the amount of lending that banks are prepared to make to certain sort of borrowers out there? Yeah, I mean, look, it's lending at the moment isn't really uh, a concern. And if you look at house prices, we're only still very much back to, you know, uh, pre-COVID levels. Um, and, you know, in terms of Melbourne, you know, where they haven't, like, house prices haven't actually changed dramatically, say, since like 2017. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, sure, house prices have been recovering, but we're not in a bubble. If we do get to a point where we consider it to be a bubble, then there is definitely nothing that will stop APRA from stepping in um, and reintroducing those macroprudential sort of measures. Mm -hmm. um, and if anything, that's probably the preference. Um, you know, that APRA introduces macro crew rather than you know, the RBA hiking rates necessarily because um, some people have been talking about, well, RBA doing quantitative easing. So RBA doing quantitative easing involves them going out and buying Commonwealth government bonds and state government bonds. That shouldn't affect house prices. Mm. Um, so, you know, they want to keep the cost of borrowing down for the government, so the government can create jobs, etc. So APRA macro crew, if it was a very targeted measure for the housing market, if it does start, you know, heating up excessively, would probably be the most preferred tool, if anything. Yeah. Okay. Now, um, one of the reasons why I got you guys to, to manage the, the bond fund that 
is out there now known as the Switzer Higher Yield Fund is that I do think you guys are some of the smartest uh, people playing in the interest rate and the bond market space. And a lot of people are saying to me that they think in a not too distant future, these fixed rate home loans with a one on the handle like 1.9 or whatever, will probably start to rise. What's your feeling about fixed interest rates in the home loan market? Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, can never give financial advice, but um, I suspect they will rise before, um, before, you know, in the next probably, yeah, in the, in the near to medium term even. Yeah. Um, and the reason why is because um, firstly, the banks have been able to extend very favorable rates um, on fixed rate mortgages because they have had access to the term funding facility. So the RBA introduced the term funding facility in the middle of COVID last year uh, in March. And they said that the banks would be able to borrow out to three years at 0.25%. Yeah. And then later on in the year, they lowered that same rate from 0.25% to 0.1% in line with you know, the lowering of the cash rate. So, however, because the banks haven't needed, they've been awash with liquidity. They haven't needed to really access this term funding facility that much. So, you know, given the banks are not the ones that are struggling at the moment, um, you know, the RBA has said that they are not going to extend this term funding facility and that they're going to just allow this to roll off um you know later this year mm. in which case that means that if the rb well if the banks aren't able to access the rba's term funding facility after you know later this year this means that they you know will have to go out and you know effectively borrow at you know the market rate rather than that you know special discounted 0.1 yeah. right yeah. um and you know we should expect those fixed rates to move higher. So yeah, that's definitely a very conceivable, um, you know, premise that you pose there. Okay. Now, as you said, you're not giving financial advice, but let me set up a scenario, right? Your your favourite cousin comes to you and says, "You're an expert on this, and we don't buy a house, and we're not sure whether we should do variable or fixed." And I'm I'm kind of thinking these fixed rates look really good. Should I do it for the longest possible time or should I do it for the shortest possible time? <laughs> what would you say? It's not oh. it's only, because it's, only because it's your favourite cousin that you would give you your, your best possible financial education view mm. as opposed to your advice. Well, I can, I can give you a, a personal anecdote because I have just bought um, an investment property myself yeah. um, and I have fixed for the longest possible period. Personally, you know, yeah. but again, that's not financial advice. That's of course, it's not. Opinion. No, it's just brilliant financial education. Yeah. Ying Yi, thanks for joining us on the program. We'll talk to you in a couple of weeks' time. Thank you so much, Peter.